Welcome. You are listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. And materials or item read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers, and no unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. My name is Nancy Porter, and I'm glad to be back with you sharing articles from Time magazine. These articles will be from the current issue, January 30th through February 6th issue of Time magazine. This is from the Brief News section. Its title... Why is the U.S. considering banning gas stoves? And it is authored by Nick Popley, and since there is no byline, I can only assume he's a staff writer at time. Federal regulators are considering a ban on gas stoves, present in roughly one-third of U.S. homes, amid rising concern about increased risk of asthma in children and other respiratory health risks linked to indoor air pollution from the appliances. The U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission, the CPSC, which can issue mandatory standards or ban products if no feasible change would adequately protect the public, says it is still figuring out the best way to tackle this issue. Richard Trumka, Jr., a CPSC commissioner, tweeted on January 9th that, quote, gas stoves can emit dangerous levels of toxic chemicals, even when not in use, end quote and that his agency will consider all approaches to regulation. The news has generated its own heat, but CPSC says any action would involve a lengthy process, meaning there are no imminent policy changes. Trumka clarified the agency cannot physically remove gas stoves from homes, but instead can require new products to comply with its regulations. This could include requiring new homes be built with electric stoves or high-efficiency exhaust vents. The debate over gas cooking's health hazards began nearly 50 years ago when researchers in England and Scotland surveyed the parents of more than 5,000 children and found a positive correlation between gas cooking and asthma symptoms. But a slew of new studies have spurred fresh concerns. Researchers have found that gas stoves release nitrogen dioxide and other tiny airborne particles known as PM2.5, both of which are lung irritants and have been linked with childhood asthma. In December, a study published in the International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health found more than 12% of current childhood asthma cases in the U.S. can be linked to gas stove use. Certain populations, such as children or people who already have asthma, are more susceptible, says Brady Seals, a manager in the carbon-free building programs at the nonprofit clean energy group RMI and a co-author of the study. This gets into the health equity issue, since we know asthma is a profoundly unequal disease, as black children are almost three times more likely to have asthma. A simple safety measure people can take is to use a high-efficiency range hood that carries air contaminants outside rather than recirculating them indoors. Those without an exhaust hood should open their windows during and after cooking, recommends the National Asthma Council. 
but even that may not fully resolve the health risks. A study published in the journal Environmental Science and Technology in October found gas stoves can leak low levels of methane and benzene even when not in use. Some some households may want to consider using air purifiers in their kitchen to improve air quality, though filters must be replaced often. Others may decide to purchase a single-burner plug-in induction cooktop for as little as $60, which can be particularly cost-effective for renters. Under the Inflation Reduction Act, anyone looking to swap a gas stove for electric can receive a tax rebate of up to $840, as well as up to $500 to help over the cost of converting. Beyond the health reasons, switching to electric induction cooking is an important climate step, and there are potentially also cooking benefits that allow you to actually cook faster, says Jonathan Levy, chair of Boston University's Department of Environmental Health. Gas stove regulation is a hot topic in the restaurant world. An outright ban on gas stoves could have a particularly significant impact on East Asian restaurants, which often require very hot flash frying. But some chefs are welcoming the adjustment to electrification. Chris Galarza, a Pittsburgh-area chef and founder of the commercial kitchen consulting company Forward Dining Solutions, says making the switch to induction has helped his team increase production and improved employee mental health because the chicken, the kitchen is not as hot. A lot of chefs will say gas is king because that's how we've always done it, Galarza says. But we only started cooking with gas the last 100 or so years. So if you're really concerned with tradition, you'd be cooking on coal or wood, not gas. When it comes down to it, chefs are afraid of change. All right, let's move on to another article in the same issue of Time Magazine, January 30th through February 6th. And the title of this one is The D.C. Brief by Philip Elliott, who is the Washington correspondent. When Gallup asked Americans for the first time about their trust in government, a mind-blowing 73% answered positively. Fast forward from 1958 to the present. A measly 20% now express trust in government, a near-historic low. No single tidy explanation serves here, but it's lost on no one that Americans have soured on the notion of political leaders as unifying figures to be trusted to do the right thing. We've come a long way from President Dwight D. Eisenhower, the war hero turned executive, to Representative George Santos, a freshman Republican from New York who cannot make his way through a hallway without facing legitimate questions about whether he should keep a job based on lies. So far, we know Santos did not tell the truth about his high school, his college, his faith, his CV, his money, his grandmother's Holocaust experiences, his mother's death's link to 9-11, 
Whether his staffer died in the Pulse shooting, well, there's a lot that doesn't add up when it comes to Santos, who previously called himself Anthony DeVolder, and whose campaign finances rightly face scrutiny. Still, it looks as if Santos is going to keep his gig, although without any plum assignments. House Republicans have a razor's edge margin for governing, and they seem fine harboring a fabulist so long as he's a yes-man to Speaker Kevin McCarthy. So, when you hear your neighbors complain about government, remind them that it wasn't always this bad. Not that long ago, Americans trusted government because their leaders were, at a minimum, who they said they were. All right, the next article is is titled How Secrets Keep Us Sick by Sarah Levy. She is the author of a book called Drinking Games, from which this essay is adapted. Again, from Time Magazine's January 30th to February 6, 2023 issue. How Secrets Keep Us Sick I have always had the urge to lie. As a child, I told classmates that I had a new puppy at home. I was afraid of dogs and had never even asked my parents for one, but I understood that pets were attractive to other six-year-olds. When Julie, a French girl with a blunt haircut, came over for a play date one day, she looked skeptical when I told her my dog was in the other room. He's sleeping, I explained. When she accused me of lying, I finally introduced her to Lucky, my plush stuffed Dalmatian, holding him the way I had seen my mom cradle my baby brother. Shh, I whispered to Julie. She never came over again. I told white lies, mostly. I'm majoring in biology, I once ratted off to a stranger at a nail salon despite having zero interest in science. Other lies were random, like when I told a crush that I'd spent the previous Saturday night at a party with Adrian Greiner. Nope. And that I had been in seven serious relationships before. I was 26 and had two ex-boyfriends. Some lies were bigger and more serious, like the Sunday evening I woke up in the emergency room after blacking out at a brunch and falling down a flight of stairs. I had been taken to the hospital in an ambulance, and because I was only 24 and still on my parents' health insurance plan, I panicked at the thought of them receiving a bill in the mail. The truth about my blackout seemed too horrible to tell them. I didn't want them to worry. So I told them I had been hit by a cab instead. Of all the people I lied to, I was the best at lying to myself for Research has dubbed this act self-deception, explaining that it involves a degree of mental disassociation. I knew my blackouts were dangerous, problematic, and unmanageable, but I was entirely unwilling to give up drinking. So I developed mental processes that allowed me to ignore selective memories and told myself what I wanted to hear. When I woke up with vomit in my hair after heavily drinking the night before, I decided I had just gotten carsick on the cab ride home. If I blacked out and cried, it was because I was stressed about work. When I went home with a guy I couldn't remember meeting, I pretended it was a funny story. I switched from vodka to tequila to white wine to beer to vodka again, 
telling myself this time would be different. I wanted to believe I had control over the way my brain and body processed alcohol. But the truth was, I never had any idea what would happen once I started to drink. There were nights I tripped on sidewalks and curbs, the ground rushing up underneath me until I smacked down face forward. The initial contact usually jolted me out of a blackout, the impact searing into my palms and knees and sending a message to my brain to get up. I always bounded up quickly, reassuring everyone around me that I was fine. I would try to shake the pain off, but once I became aware of it, it was harder to ignore. Uncovering the truth about my blackouts was a similar shock to my system. After years underwater, I was finally coming up for air and examining what was left of my life. I realized I had not just been lying to myself about how much alcohol affected me. I had been lying to myself about why I drank in the first place. I never let myself admit how hurt and scared I felt at 16 or 24 or 26. I was ashamed of having feelings, so I buried them. When I got sober at age 28, I started to parse through my lies. There were so many. The excuses I invented for missing plans when I was painfully hungover. The exaggerated details about my love life the reality of how unmanageable my drinking had really gotten. I couldn't bear the idea of my friends and family seeing me at my lowest. So I constructed a house, brick by brick, lie by lie, to protect myself. Strangely enough, if you had asked me when I was still drinking, I would have told you I was an honest person. Lying and keeping secrets from people wasn't something I did to be cruel, it was a survival mechanism. There's research that shows that primates evolved the tendency to tell lives to maximize survival. And a 2018 study in Memory and Cognition explains that fa false denial can serve as a coping tool for managing shame and guilt. I was dreadfully uncomfortable in my own skin and desperate to be someone, anyone else, it seemed natural to alter the truth when my own reality was so painful. In recovery, I started to understand that lying was a tool many people picked up early in life to cope with feelings of discomfort and inadequacy. Alcoholism, I learned, involves an inability to be honest with ourselves and other people, not only about our drinking, but also about the inner workings of our minds. I was surprised to discover that alcohol use disorder can actually cause damage to parts of the brain like the frontal lobe. Such damage, it turns out, has been shown to increase the potential for behaviors like risk-taking, the disruption of decision-making, and lying over time. But I had been lying long before I took my first drink. Maybe some children simply make up stories, their wild imaginations running rampant. I had been coached to lie by the person who sexually assaulted me when I was a child. I was taught to withhold the truth from my parents and other adults in my life, and the trauma stopped me in my tracks, 
rewiring my brain to invent lies whenever the truth was too ugly. When I discovered alcohol years later, my lying habit simply escalated. Secrets keep us sick. For years, I had been in denial about my struggles with alcohol, as well as the truth about my abuse. Until I got honest with myself, I could not begin to heal. Now, if I wanted to truly recover, I needed to begin practicing rigorous honesty in all areas of my life. This did not come easily to me in early sobriety. I was experiencing my emotions for the very first time in over a decade and disclosing giant truths to my family and therapist. Still, I was disappointed to discover how much of a knee-jerk reaction lying had really become. When a co-worker asked me about my weekend on a Monday morning, I felt the urge to lie and invent stories about fun parties even though I had spent the past 48 hours in recovery meetings or horizontal on my couch. Truthfully, sometimes I missed it, <clears throat> the way I could escape into the distraction of managing chaos. In the quiet, I had to face the parts of myself I wanted to avoid. I had too much to lose to pick up lying again. In recovery groups, they say that there's a strong link between addiction and loneliness, both in the physical and emotional sense. My secrets kept me isolated from myself. I told lies so I could become someone else. And in the aftermath of lying, I often withdrew from those closest to me. It was a vicious cycle that kept me trapped in shame, and I was finally ready to break free from it. A therapist once told me that trauma causes separation, while healing means integration. When I was drinking, it was painful to admit how many mornings I woke up feeling absolute terror and demoralizing shame over the night before. I separated from my drunk self, disturbed by how little I cared about what happened to me when I blacked out. I also separated from my inner child, the little girl who had been taught to lie as a form of protection. In recovery, I learned to make space for all the younger versions of myself, I paid attention to the feelings and fears over which we lied and drank, and I began to learn comfort. I learned to comfort us all. Honestly, there are still moments I want to lie, when I forget to send an email or haven't seen the movie everyone else is talking about, or want to avoid conflict. I'm not perfect, but I continue to work to promptly admit when I've been dishonest with myself or someone else. The self-esteem and inner peace I've gained since I kicked lying in sobriety is what I searched for in every drink and dishonest breath. All right, let's move on to another article. Um, this is a climate article, and its title is India's Path. And it's also from a current issue of Time Magazine, January 30th through February 6th of 2023. This is by Justin Warland in Jharkhand, India. Let me see if there is a byline here. No, there is no byline. It just says, with reporting by Solsiri Berga and Leslie Dickenstein in New York. 
India's path. How one country became the most important player in the planet's future. The drive from Ranchi to Hazarbig in the eastern Indian state of Jharkhand is only 65 miles, but it takes nearly three hours. We swerve to avoid children chatting with friends and meandering down the highway, honk at cows to get out of the way, and accelerate past pickups reconfigured as makeshift transport vehicles overflowing with workers. Men in sandals push bicycles overloaded with bags of coal down the highway, while on the back roads close to Hazarabag, women carry buckets of the stuff on their heads. Coal is what brought me to Jharkhand, one of India's poorest and most polluted states. The pedestrian colliers, illegal miners trying to make ends meet, are just the start. All along the route to our destination, the Topa Opal coal mine, a caravan of large, colorful trucks filled to the brim with coal barrel toward us in the opposite lane. When we finally reach the mine, I see the source of it all. An explosion has blasted through a wall of rock, opening access to new tranches of coal to feed the country's fast-growing power and industrial needs, says J.K. John, the senior mining supervisor on site, employed by a subsidiary of the state-owned Coal India Limited. Here, coal is in demand. Two flights and more than 900 miles away, the northwestern state of Rajasthan is a world apart. Along a smoothly paved highway from the Jaisalmer Airport, wind turbines dot the landscape as far as the eye can see. Farther from the town center, we approach a field of solar panels, comprising a 300-megawatt power plant opened in 2021 by the Indian company Renew Power, providing electricity for the growing population of the state Maharashtra, home to Mumbai. Even as the region expands its renewable energy industry, the atmosphere remains clean and pleasant enough to support a thriving tourist trade. Jharkhand and Rajasthan, so different in appearance, are being shaped by the same fundamental force. India is growing so rapidly that its energy demand is effectively insatiable. But the two states present starkly different answers to that demand. Historically, fossil fuels from places like Jharkhand powered industrialization. But today, with climate concerns rising, many experts are calling for India to ditch coal as soon as possible and embrace the green energy model so prevalent in Rajasthan. Much rides on which approach dominates India's energy future. In the three decades since reducing emissions became a discussion point on the global stage, analysts have portrayed the U.S., China, and Europe as the most critical targets for cutting pollution. But as the curve finally begins to bend in those places, it's become clear that India will soon be the most important country in the climate change effort. In December, I spent 10 days in India, visiting coal communities, touring renewable energy sites, and talking with leaders in the country's political and financial hubs 
to understand India's approach to the energy transition. The picture that emerged is of a government following an approach uncharted in a country of its scale. Pursue green technologies in the midst of industrialization while leaving the fate of coal to the market. India, as a responsible global citizen, is willing to make the bet that it can justify the aspiration for higher living standards while pursuing a quite different energy strategy from any large country before, says Suman Berry, who leads NITI AYOG, the Indian government's economic policy-making agency. India, Berry says, will pursue clean energy while seeking a balance between energy access and affordability, energy security, and environmental considerations. Where that balance is struck could tip the climate scales worldwide. India contributes 7% of the emissions that cause global warming today, a percentage that will expand alongside its economy. This group will help determine whether, and by how far, the world blows past the goal of keeping global temperatures from rising more than the Paris Agreement target of 1.5 degrees centigrade. Equally important, India's approach is being watched elsewhere. It can use low-carbon development to bring prosperity to its 1.4 billion people. Others can follow. Failure could lead to a retrenchment into fossil fuels across the global south. What the global north does matter also. The International Energy Agency, IEA, estimates that India needs $1.4 trillion in additional investment in coming decades to align its energy system with global climate targets. That will very likely require reforms at international lenders, like the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, to facilitate the flow of money. The best outcome, observers say, is one where India gets the help it needs to make the best choice for everyone. India has to do it for itself, says Rachel Kite, the dean of the Fletcher School of International Affairs at Tufts University. And... India needs to do it for the world. In a bitter irony, cold-rich Jharkhand cannot provide reliable electricity even to hospitals, schools, and other essential service providers. India's second poorest state may be an extreme example, but such problems pervade every corner of the country and are the crux of its energy and climate challenge. It is, fundamentally, a developing nation, and its leaders do not want to write off any fuel source while energy demand continues its meteoric rise. As the country's population swells to as high as a projected 1.8 billion over the next 40 years, and its economy grows at an even faster rate, the country will need to add a power system equivalent to the size of that of the entire European Union, according to the International Energy Agency. Historically, development at that scale happened one way. 
fossil fuels built a country's industrial base. And then leaders pivoted to a lower carbon, service-oriented model. China, one of history's most successful examples of modern rapid modernization, built its industrial capacity by relentlessly adding coal-fired power plants and now boasts the second largest economy in the world, run primarily on coal. With that base established, the country has recently begun its full-fledged expansion of renewable energy. India, with its abundant coal resources, could simply do the same. While research shows that a rapid expansion of renewable energy could provide the country with reliable electricity given adequate investment, no other country has tried it at India's scale. Attempting a renewable revolution comes with some inevitable risks, like technical challenges and vulnerability to foreign supply change. Meanwhile, coal is tried and tested. Above all, leaders in India insist that they have the right to power up using coal. In the lingo of the climate world, every country has its own population-based fair share of emissions it can produce before the world hits unsafe levels of global warming. In this formulation, the U.S. and European countries have already far exceeded their limits. India, on the other hand, has contributed only 4% of global emissions since 1850, despite being home to 18% of the world's population, according to a 2019 United Nations report. Whatever the reasoning, no one I spoke with in India, from academics to renewable energy executives, would endorse a swift transition away from coal. India is not married to coal, says Rahul Tongja, a senior fellow at the Center for Social and Economic Progress in New Delhi. It's just that what that's what India's got. Instead, government officials are working to promote renewable energy without actively working to shut down coal. At the center of this approach is Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Modi, whose support for solar power extends back to his time as the top official in the state of Gujarat in the 2010s, has set up renewable energy targets, saying at COP26 in 2021 that the country would install 500 gigawatts of renewable energy capacity by the year 2030. That is equivalent to 15 times California's current renewable capability. To get there, the Modi government has merged its renewable energy and clean energy technology objectives with its policy of liberalizing the economy and boosting the private sector. Barry of NITI IOG describes the government's approach as market-based creating a context for clean technologies to edge out coal in the market, rather than relying on government mandates. India, he tells me in his New Delhi office, should be backing all these other technologies so that it's a pure commercial choice, 
rather than a regulatory choice to phase out coal. Industry insiders say this approach is working. The government-backed Solar Energy Corporation of India, for example, all but eliminated the risk that states would renege on their agreements, a significant worry for the banks that finance such projects. By serving as an intermediary between private sector developers and states. If states don't pay, the agency can essentially force them to do so, an innovation that has played a fundamental role in allowing the industry to grow, says Sumant Sinha, who has led Renew Power since 2011. Using policy to drive private sector investment is the norm in places like the U.S., but it's new for India. For decades, electricity production and distribution in India was controlled by state-owned enterprises, from state-owned coal mines to state-owned power plants to the state-owned grid. With the new approach, the private sector deploys clean energy technologies and the government facilitates. This is a fundamental ideological change in Indian governance. The preamble to India's constitution declares it a socialist state. But the investment in renewable energy that has led capacity to double since Modi took office has come almost entirely from private companies, and it isn't slowing down. The most natural thing for India to meet this burgeoning electric requirement is to meet it through renewable energy, because it's the cheapest, most commercially sound thing to do, says Sinha. The IEA projects that solar power will make up around 30% of India's electricity generation by 2040, matching coal's share. This private sector vitality was on full display in Rajasthan, where I saw massive wind and solar farms that belong to the country's biggest private players, including the mega-corporations Tata and Adani. But the focus on markets also reflects hard politics. Driving around Jharkhand, a state of 33 million people, it's impossible to miss how entrenched the coal industry has become. Livelihoods depend on it. From educated supervisors running the show, to indigent, indigent locals scrounging for scraps of coal. On the outskirts of the Topa mine, I saw an entire village abandoned to make way for miners to open up a new coal seam. Displacing such a colossus, policymakers say, cannot be done with a regulation here and there. The minute you say no coal, there will be political implications. There will be riots, says Amitabh Kant, who is leading India's G20 conference this year. But if coal becomes commercially non-viable, that will be acceptable because the market will do it. It's a bold bet. Even with a true transition from coal likely decades away, many local officials and activists across India have begun to call for dedicated programs to assure a just transition 
that protects those affected by a move away from coal. A smooth transition matters not only for India, but also for the rest of the world. It's a test case for how to implement an energy shift in developing countries while also supporting their economic growth. India's leaders are cleanly aware of the global stakes. Wherever I traveled there, I saw signs celebrating India's hosting this year's G20, the annual forum for the world's largest economies, at which the host is keen to make climate a central topic. India will tout its efforts to spur behavioral change among consumers and its nascent use of hydrogen as an energy storage medium. The meetings, Kant says, could lead countries come to agreement on how to reform institutions like the IMF and World Bank so that they can help developing countries decarbonize. The energy transition globally will cost untold trillions of dollars, and most countries now agree that these international financial institutions need to create instruments to make investing in places like India less risky for private financiers. To actually deliver on such an agenda, though, India must first convince the rest of the world that its model for low-carbon development can work. Modi and others have already begun a campaign to show the rest of the world how serious it is and to point out Western hypocrisy. At COP27, the annual UN climate conference held in November in Egypt, India lobbied for countries to agree to phase out all fossil fuels rather than just coal, an implicit challenge to the U.S. and other Western countries that are rich in oil. Why should only coal be phased out, Kant asks me rhetorically. And Modi's LIFE campaign, which focuses on the role behavior change can play in cutting emissions, stems from a recognition that India's per capita emissions are just 40% of the global average. India's energy future remains India's choice but for all of the country's insistence on sovereignty by marrying its energy policy to its economic liberalization, it has chosen a path of interdependence. In leaving the speed of its green transition to the whims of the market, India has accepted a dependence on price signals, investment choices, and economic trends far beyond the control of New Delhi or Mumbai. The political signals the policy evolution, or even the international commitments are also contingent on how quickly the market participants are able to respond, says Arunaba Ghosh, CEO of the Council on Energy, Environment and Water, an Indian environmental NGO. Which means our future on the planet, once again, depends on a collective choice. Political leaders across the global North and South can reform the institutions that govern the global economy, ensuring that the market decisively favors clean energy over fossil fuels. Or, we can all bid farewell to global climate targets and gird ourselves 
for the far more costly dangers that would come next. And these have been articles from the current Time magazine issue of January 30th through February 6th of 2023. And remember, materials read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. And I'm Nancy Porter, and it has been my delight and pleasure to share these articles with you.